0: Hello, and welcome to Farmers Capital Conversations. I'm your host, Casey Silveria. This podcast aims to expand your social, intellectual, and economic capital. Investing on and off the farm is hard enough. Here, we will provide insightful stories and resources to help out. Full transparency, this is our shameless way for you to like us and hopes you partner with us down the road. Lastly, there are no ads here. All I ask is you enjoy and share if you find value. Now, on to the episode.
1: our 15 companies, um, five of those, we were the only investor brought in or asked to come in because they recognize the value of our team, which our team has over 200 years of experience in food and ag. And, And that's really the capital we bring to the table, the intellectual capital. Hello, everyone.
0: Welcome back to the show. Today, we're joined by Jim Schultz, the driving force behind Open Prairie. He is a fifth generation Illinoisan with deep roots in agriculture. Jim's leadership over the past 24 years has led to the creation of over 4,000 jobs across industries in the domestic United States, from ag tech to medical devices. Jim, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Casey, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Absolutely. I heard a recent podcast you did with Damian Mason over on Business of Ag. Um, Great show. You were talking about all things that you're doing at Open Prairie. And I immediately thought, I got to get Jim on, have a conversation, get our listeners in the know about what you guys do and what you look for in ag companies, you know, hoping to get to the next stage of their, their company growth and trajectory. Great. Look forward to that. Yeah, absolutely. So Jim, why don't you back us up? You know, what is Open Prairie? How is it structured? You
1: know, where did you get your start in ag? Sure. Casey, we're based in central Illinois, in between Indianapolis and St. Louis. And a lot of people find that curious to run a private equity fund out of a town of 12,000 people. And some of that largely has to do with my heritage and legacy. Um, I was raised on a piece of property. My great-great-grandfather acquired in the early 1800s. He settled the county that I live in. Uh, so I was fortunate to be one of five generations to grow up on that land. Uh, my office today is three miles west of that land. Our family was has been active for five generations in various aspects of ag, from, from flour milling to seed companies to farming operations, both here in, in South America. As a child, I lived in South America for a while. Uh, but anyway, our family sold the seed business, and I then decided to take some of the proceeds and start our first venture fund. We started that in 1999, and uh, we were just being opportunistic and looking for deals that we felt we could add value and quickly realized the, the value add that we could bring the most to the table was in agriculture because of the heritage, because of the background, uh, because of the team I'd assembled. And, and so we quit trying to be uh, competitive with the West Coast and recognized the West Coast didn't know what we knew and that we had mm-hmm. a lot more Advantage. And so we started to focus on agribusiness back in 06, uh, 07. And so today we have 15 companies across the ag value chain. Our investors tend to be ag related organizations, or family offices that see value in the food and ag production systems of the United States. Okay.
0: So you have, yeah, deep history, fit generation on land, you're working three miles just west of that land, which is which is wild. I always think back on these uh these stats you hear like 80% of people don't move away from their home that's like outside of 20 miles or something like that. It's probably yeah. pretty
1: true. Guilty.
0: <laughs> Guilty, yeah. Yeah, I am too. I grew up in Caldwell. Now I live in Boise and it's about 35, 40 miles. So I mean, yeah, I'm I'm there too. So you have 15 companies currently in in this fund, so what are you guys looking for when you go invest in these ag, ag companies? What is it specifically? Is there something unique about them in their value proposition? Um, is it a good timing? Like, what can you give us a, a brief overview, like the lens that
1: you guys are looking at ag companies? Sure, no, I'll speak to a couple of points there, but but data check. Uh, we we've managed three funds to date. The fifteen companies are across. Our second and third fund, our fourth fund we are raising uh, is a $200 million fund that we'll close on later this year. And that one will continue to invest exclusively in agribusiness. But, but to your question specifically, and the advice I have for entrepreneurs is, um, you know, there's probably five or six or seven things, but I'm going to kind of narrow it to three things. One is get in front of the potential investor early. Don't, don't go to the investor when you need money. Educate the so 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 in a sense educate the investor or the prospect on why you have a unique value proposition. Show them milestones that you hope to achieve, and then come back. and Secondly, be be a bit of a nuisance in a, in a in a polite and you know kind way, but you know every quarter or so, ping me if if you're you know I'm your target. You want me to invest keep me updated on how you're achieving your milestones or what challenges you have. We know it's not going to be perfect and we know you're going to have setbacks, but that's okay. Keep us educated, keep us informed. And, and I think the third thing is, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I, like the, uh, the, the, the book, Dr. Seuss, a cat in the hat, you know, keep, keep asking, uh, you know, for, for what you want, keep asking for the sale and, and ask the, ask the, the fund. Can you help me? Can you help me do something more than bring money? And, and, we do a lot of that, Casey. We spend a lot of time with early stage companies before they're ready for our growth stage capital. But what happens is we frequently are the only investor asked to come into those rounds because we've done some early uh, work to help guide them and provide them assistance. I'll give you a quick example of that. Yeah. Um, we, we had a company that came to us three years ago with robotic technology. It was too early for us. Their units ran about 40000 a apiece. And they did not have access to retail channels, so I introduced them to a good friend of mine who's the president of a co-op. Uh, that co-op this year bought twenty of their units. Uh, excuse me, they bought forty of their units. One point six million dollar purchase. So, so that being good said, help them. Um, we have not invested in the company. I've known them now for three plus years, but when they're mature and ready, I think we're going to get first shot at investing. And in, in, in our in our fifteen companies. Um, five of those, we were the only investor brought in or asked to come in because they recognize the value of our team, which our team has over 200 years of experience in food and ag. And, and that's really the capital we bring to the table, the intellectual capital. So mm-hmm. just to summarize back in your question, get, get to know the, 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 funding source early, keep them updated and ask them for help.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah be okay with getting a little vulnerable and that you don't know what you don't know. And oftentimes you have to reach out to people at that next stage or have the the lantern, if you will, to guide you into the next phase, just like you do making the connection leading up to a $1.6 million sale. That, that's huge. But then combined with this, just the huge amount of years that you guys have under, you know, ag experience, you guys bring a lot to the table and it's really cool to see because you, and based on what I was listening to, Damien's it's like, you guys don't plan on like micromanaging these companies when you come in. You prefer more of a consulting role. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, we want to be your partner. We want to help grow mm-hmm. the business. We, you know, we're putting capital side by side with, with your largely sweat equity and maybe some cases family money. And we want to protect and preserve and grow that. And so we want to be a partner and help you particularly focus on top line and how we can grow top line while building a profitable business. Mm-hmm. How many applications do
0: you get a year, Jim? Just curious.
1: We we see about 750 to 1,000 deals a year. And on average, fund three or four of those. That's crazy. Yeah, there's a lot out there. And, and, and even more so in the last kind of four or five years with the amount of uh, West Coast money that's gone into this Term called ag tech, which I contend has been around for centuries, but it's a, a new coin phrase being used in the last decade. So, sounds about right. Yeah, ag
0: tech. So you are less than ten percent of your deals. I mean, that's roughly five percent, three to five percent of the deals that you're you're accepting into the fund. So what does that look like when they come to you? They build the relationship. They they make sure it's a good fit for both parties, and then what What is the next stage of that
1: so yeah it's it's even a lower percentage it's it's less than one percent hit rate mm-hmm. and and just because of the numbers that come through our door um but I think you know once once an entrepreneur you know gets our attention uh, the the steps are that we go through a process of better understanding the business we do our own diligence, we do some customer calls uh we we spend time with the management team. And we try to move fairly quickly to get to a term sheet and make sure there's a meeting of the minds of what the financing might look like uh, rather than waste each other's time. We, we, We did not come up as fund managers. We didn't grow up in that environment. Uh, we tend to be more entrepreneurial type in personality. So we like to be uh, like other entrepreneurs and, and be quick with a decision or quick with a uh, yes or a no decision, whichever it is. Mm-hmm. I, I prefer a, a quick uh, yes or a quick no than a long maybe. And so that's how yeah. we treat our entrepreneurs. And we try to get to a term sheet within a few weeks of making a decision to go forward. And then we run a concurrent process where we go deeper in diligence. We do uh, maybe some technical reviews. We'll bring in outside resources to complete the diligence and then move concurrently with legal documents to a closing. All of that being said, I'll, I'll give you two kind of uh, d- dates of reference. The average time between when we met an entrepreneur and we put money into an entrepreneur in our last fund was four and a half years. Don't don't be daunted by that. We've done it as fast as a year, and we've done it as long as 12 years from when we met the company. So, <laughs> so it's a process. Don't don't it. Yeah, anything short of that. And and then I think secondly, we tend to be able to, once we make a decision to go, we tend to be able to close that within 90 to 120 days. So if if we're, we're issuing a term sheet, we're going to move that within a, hopefully within a quarter to a close.
0: Okay. So that four and a half years, really just an average shortest one year can be outside of 12 around there, but the average is usually around four to four and a half. Okay.
1: Right. And again, I think I think if one is looking for a transactional relationship, we're probably not your partner. Yeah. Looking for a long term partner to help you grow the business. Get to know your partner. It's it's you should know your partner as much as the partner should know you.
0: hmm Yeah, it's uh, it's almost like getting married to someone.
1: It is. It very much is.
0: Yeah. Hopefully you have some overnighters, you know, have a few beers, you know, figure out what your goals are, all of that.
1: Something like that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, when, what does it look like? You you know, from a farmer perspective, they've built this company over the last five, 10 years, put a lot of sweat equity into it. They have everything in this. And then they come to you. They have 100% ownership of this company. It's doing well. It's proven to have consistent returns or about to have consistent returns. And then they get a hold of you what can they expect as far as that term sheet just to give them a flavor of what, what what kind of ownership would they be, you know, need to be willing to give up or, I mean, can you give us some flavor there?
1: Yeah. I I think, you know, typically we average about 20 to 25% ownership in a company and and there aren't really any norms. So I I wouldn't um, overemphasize that point. I think, I think that, um, you know, we've owned as li- little as a couple percentage in a company. We've owned 100 uh, percent of companies that we've invested in. So it really comes down to um, you know making sure a you have the right amount of capital you're raising, so you don't have to worry about boy I got to do this again in 12 months or 24 months. Raise what you need to grow the business and make it profitable. B uh, find a partner that can add value. We've talked about that. Mm-hmm. C valuation. You know, aspire to get as high valuation as you can, but recognize that. We're looking at it also from a four to five year time horizon and saying, at some point we have to exit the business because of the, of the way the fund model is built. I don't have this money permanently. I don't, I don't have the luxury of having an evergreen fund. So I have an obligation to buy investors to return the capital in roughly a four or five year period. So if your valuation uh, gets to a level where we can get comfortable and we say, we can build this from X to Y, and at Y it will be worth 4, 5, 10 times our money, then we get comfortable with the pre-money valuation. But if you have a lofty pre-money valuation, uh, it makes it more difficult for us to make a decision to invest because we say, how do we exit this eventually? Uh, I tell entrepreneurs all the time, Casey, I said, don't take my money if you can avoid it. Take it from other investors that have a, a longer time horizon than five years. The fund investment model is very broken. It, it it should be different, but it doesn't allow it. it the, the industry set up on a 10-year fund cycle uh, mm-hmm. with a five-year investment window. So it's it's, it's a, a challenge to be a longer-term investor, particularly in agriculture, when you only have a five-year window to get in and out of an investment.
0: Mm-hmm. That's pretty similar to the real estate deals that I'm part of. You know, Typically, those hold periods around five years. So there is some similarities there.
1: Very, very much so. Yes.
0: Yeah. Well, it's all about returning capital, but maybe we can dive into that a little bit. So where are you getting your capital from? I mean, you have all this money, you go through a very heavy due diligence process, you accept less than 1% of the applicants on a yearly basis into your fund. So you're a farmer, you hit that 1% mark And then you're wondering, well, where's this money actually coming from? I mean, I realize Open Prairie has all this knowledge and experience. They're going to help me get from A to Z. But on the back end, you know, what is driving this four or five year hold period? And then the eventual exit of returning that capital. Can you shine a light on
1: that for us? Sure. So our investors are largely made up of of four um, subsectors. One is... uh, commercial banks that are investors and in, have a large presence in agriculture. And, the, and these names are on our website, so uh, CIBC, UMB Bank, uh, First National Bank of Omaha, uh, to name a few. Um, and, and then in addition, the second category is the Farm Credit System banks, CoBank, Compeer, Farm Credit Services of Mid-America, um, Farm Credit Services of America. So those are some of our investors as well. That represents about about 80% of our investment dollars. We also have family offices that are investors and then high net worth individuals. Uh, A few strategics, uh, for example, the North Dakota Farmers Union is an investor in our fund, the Iowa Corn Growers. Those Those are the type of investors that are also very important to us. Strategically, because they give us access to the farmer uh, in different regions and different in different ways that uh, we have access. We have good access, but it just enhances that access for us.
0: Hmm. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So you have these big banks trying to diversify their own company's portfolio, and one of the ways they do that is by investing in ag. And then you are a key player in that space. So why not partner with Jim and Open Prairie? you know, get some diversification happening there. So what are the banks and family offices? And and maybe can you dive into or clarify what a family office is for those that may not be aware?
1: Yes, family office tends to be um, a a family that maybe is a third, fourth generation that has accumulated maybe several hundred million to north of a billion dollars of capital and they continue to invest the family money on behalf of the family. So it may be, you know, second or third generation, fourth generation. We have uh, a couple of families where it's uh, seventh generation money uh, and that family still invests together. Um, and we help manage some of that money for them and invest in this asset class for them.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. That, that's good clarity. Thank you for that. So back, back to the capital, they're providing this money. And what are they expected to get on the five-year exit?
1: So, so it's a 10 year life fund with okay. a five-year investment window. So, but, but if we invest in a company in 2025, we would expect to inv- liquidate that investment by 2030 In this example. So this fund that will close in 2023, will we'll make all of our investments um, uh, within a five-year period up until the end of 2028. The fund will terminate though at the end of 2033. So we we have an obligation to liquidate the investments we make within that 10-year window of the fund origination date. Uh, but uh, that that's a little bit of kind of how we you know approach it and how why we look at it on this kind of time horizon because of the investors' desire for us to invest the capital and get return on that capital. What what they're looking for is is pretty simple. If they want a good IRR or a good uh, multiple return on their investment, Uh, typically what we have seen and experienced is greater than a 15% IRR and greater than two times the capital back. Keeping in mind that's about a five-year duration, you know, at least um, financial scholars say if you can double your money every eight years, you're doing pretty well. We're hoping to double your money every five years and, and keep the duration of your capital at work to a lesser number. In the end, we're an un, unapologetic capitalists. We're there to make money for our investors, and that's our obligation. We don't have a social mission that says we're going to try to be X to somebody or some country. We're here to make money for our... We're going to do it legally, ethically, and morally correct, but we're here to make money.
0: Yeah. Well, at the same time, you're providing value to them. You're, having, you're putting their capital into a good place. You're putting it in rural America, helping ag companies get to the next stage of of their growth trajectory. So when I look at it from my desk, I, I see it as, you know, it's a really, it's a win-win solution for everyone around. Like everyone's getting a little bit and you're kind of, you're that middleman that's making that relationship work and providing that um, experience to both parties really and helping helping them understand what's going on and really
1: vetting all of these opportunities as well. Exactly, and and to the point you made. I mean, there, there's a, there's a social impact on what we're doing as well. The companies we invest in are largely in towns of under ten thousand people. Mm. Uh, we're investors in a company yeah. in, in uh, you know Scandinavia, Wisconsin, Lucerne, Colorado. I mean, t- towns that you've never heard of. The towns that are sub one hundred populations, where we're bringing. Capital to work, keeping the jobs in those towns and adding more jobs. And in fact, uh, in, in our most recent fund, we've increased our employment base by a factor of about one and a half times uh, by by bringing growth capital, adding new plants, adding new uh, you know facilities, new sales territories. That helps rural America. That's also a good thing for for those that have an interest in both getting good return on capital and bringing good good results from an impact perspective.
0: Yeah. I was looking at your chart you shared earlier and just the mass amount of jobs that you guys have created in these rural communities is huge. I can't remember what they were, but I I don't want to misspeak because I've already butchered one math statistic today so far. So I don't want to do another one.
1: (laughs) Well, the the quick number, and these are as of 1231, uh, when we invested in the companies across the 15 companies, 670 jobs, Today, that's just short of 1,200 jobs. So, not not quite two times, but but you know, a, a good growth and, and a, a manageable growth. And, and uh, the other thing we do is we bring a lot of syndicated dollars to our deals. For every dollar that we put to work in a deal, uh, we bring we brought to date seven additional dollars behind that. So, if I put uh, you know five million dollars into a company, we'll have another 35 million follow us in a deal. And typically, we lead the deals because of our expertise. There's a lot of money that we find, uh, particularly uh, European money, um, uh, some of the coastal money that doesn't have the ag expertise, but wants to be investors in ag. So they follow us in deals on a pretty regular basis. And most of the entrepreneurs come to us. And I've got a call later today with an entrepreneur where um, they want us to lead the deal. They think they can. With, with only a few million to $2 million from us, then they can raise another 10 from East Coast investors because they need somebody with uh, credentials in the space that underwrites the deal. So that's a little bit of what we do as well, Casey.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that, that's great. So technical question um, for me, the, the funding that you guys get, is it mostly from accredited investors or do you allow um, sophisticated investors into these funds as well?
1: No, it's it's all accredited investors. So, it, okay. we have been, you know, careful to follow the SEC guidelines and and uh, use the uh you know the the accredited investor uh, standards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, makes a lot of sense.
0: And do you guys have minimums?
1: Yes, what we're trying to do on this current fund, we'd like to have less than 100 investors because it's a 200 million dollar fund. We have a two million dollar minimum. Uh, we have lowered it in the case of strategics where we think they can add additional value and, and uh, bring more to the table than just capital. So, um, you know, my attitude as an entrepreneur is try to figure out a way to work with somebody within their means and not try to, you know, force a, a solution that doesn't fit.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. All right, Jeff, we got to hear a success story of this. We've talked about so much of the minutia. it seems like for me. Um, I like the minutiae though. Um, so what's a success story that you got for us?
1: You know, I, the one I like to talk a lot about is a company we invested in uh, three and a half years ago called Shenandoah Valley Organics. Their, their brand is called Farmer Focus. They're a poultry production um, operation that sells their product on the uh, East Coast, largely on the East Coast. They're moving uh, now west toward the, the west of the Mississippi. But uh, when we invested, they were a company doing about 80 million a year in revenue. Um, they're now at about 3x that, um, and uh, we've increased workforce, we've added more farmers to the growing network, and um, have built a very profitable business that we think is an, you know, a symbol of, of rural America. It's in a small town in western um, Virginia, and uh, they have uh, you know, added hundreds of additional jobs. Uh, to people that you know are are needing you know that twenty twenty five dollar an hour per per uh, hour wage, and good wages in a small town and in a good healthy environment. So that that's one of the shining stars in our portfolio. It it uh, is it, symbolic of you know everything that we we believe in making good return, but also bringing jobs to rural America, bringing additional capital to rural America, uh, and and just a lot of positive things there.
0: Mm-hmm. So what were a few of their bottlenecks that that kind of forced them to come to open prayer and say, Jim, like, we need your help. We need some experience. Maybe we need some capital, too. What what
1: was that conversation like? They they needed to expand their production and also expand their coal packing capabilities. And so with our capital, they were able to do that. So that that was, I think, the most significant bottleneck. The other one, which is more of a, call a positive bottleneck, they had a number of other farmer growers that wanted to be in their group. But they didn't have the ability to accept their their production because they just didn't have the the processing plant. so so we solved both of those kind of I'll call it bottleneck problems with one one solution.
0: Gotcha. And so they so why not just go to the bank? like why do they need to go to you?
1: Well they, we do have bank financing as well, and that was part of the total finance package. but in many cases, the bank will only go so far to uh, permit X amount of of debt on the books of of an organization, you know, some cases three to three and a half times EBITDA. Uh, And and after that, they're kind of at a point where they either have to raise sub debt or, or equity. And we do provide either to companies that have that situation where they don't have ability on their balance sheet to bring on any more senior debt we can come on with junior debt or equity and and help, uh, you know, allow that growth story to happen. And in some cases we've been able to add, you know, senior or junior debt or equity and have the bank actually increase their credit facility because there's an additional support on the balance sheet.
0: Gotcha. Credit facility just being their company's credit card essentially, right?
1: Uh, Effectively. Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So I I like that Shenandoah Valley came to you guys not only needing funding, but needed your expertise. And you guys put together a package that not only had your capital, but was able to put them in contact with the right banking option for them. Is that correct?
1: That's Over, over time, that's been the case, yes. We, okay. It, didn't, it doesn't always happen overnight, but we just mm. recently closed a new financing round that uh, uh, we participated in as, uh, as a second round investor. We invested three and a half years ago, but put more money in this year in order to help facilitate a senior credit facility.
0: Gotcha. That's super cool. I mean, you guys are helping them through each stage of this. It's not like you're investing once letting them be, you know, say, here's your money, like go prove it. You're working with them in lockstep to really, really do your job as that experienced, um, middleman to ensure that your investors are happy, the family offices, the other credit investors, banks, et cetera, to make sure that they're getting their, their returns on their money. But at the same time, helping the Shenandoah valleys uh, of the world get to the next stage of their company. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's really cool. Um, let's see, we've covered a lot today. What do we, what do you want to talk about? We, I've just been poking holes at you. I sure you had you sent me some slides um earlier, and we taught. I remember the jobs were being one of them. was there anything else on the slides that you wanted to cover today Jim you know
1: my, I might talk a little bit about uh again this term ag tech and the historical perspective but also the future perspective um Casey between two thousand and fifteen and two thousand and eighteen there was $12 billion invested in ag tech and food tech. And that number's according to AgFunder. I'm, I'm sure you follow AgFunder. So a four year period of 15 to 18, there was $12 billion invested. Between 19 and 20, 2019 and 2022, that number increased to 36 billion, a three X increase over a four year period, a four, four year over four year period. What, what we have seen is a lot of companies, particularly in these financial times we're in, for economic times, come to us and say, give us anything, give, give us whatever number you give us, we'll take. And there was too much money with, uh, as I call it aspirational capital, particularly from the West Coast, Thinking that they could come in and invest in, in ag tech and and dominate it in ways that they didn't understand the seasonality of the business, or also the 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 the, the farmer uh, and the how the farmer thought how he or she thought about acquiring new technologies. So so I think that's a, a fundamental thing to think about. There's I believe there's going to be a lot of orphan and stranded technologies out there that will not survive over the next three or four years. Um, and, and so we're looking at that as an opportunity. We, we are currently looking at two roll-ups of technology companies that we're taking uh, three or four companies and bringing them together. They have similar kind of strategies, similar uh, geographic reach, or maybe not, not similar, but but complementary geographic reach. And, and you can provide you know more service and maybe get to a situation where you can have profitable kind of companies. Um, and, and so and I'll, I'll shift to where our focus is, but, but you know, as an example, I'm looking at a company that is doing about $8 million in revenue now and has an opportunity to acquire two of its, I'll call it competitors, not that they compete in the same geographies, but two complementary companies that will take them to 40 million in revenue in 2024 and be very profitable, have about a 10% margin, uh, net, net operating margin. And so those are examples of things we see today from a macro perspective that we believe are opportunistic. As it relates to specific sectors and areas of interest, where we're spending our time and where we think and and this has been the case for five years we haven't deviated there's no style drift in what we do we we've been very focused on what we think the future of ag is the future of ag is we think three things one and there's more but but one is um, improve crop input and efficiency in crop inputs whether that's nitrogen fixation technologies or technologies that that uh, you know, see and spray like John Deere has. Those types of applications where you're being more efficient, more sustainable in how you put inputs into the into the field into the crop. Two is um, in automation and robotics. We we all know about the labor issues. We know about uh, you know the. Um, the visa issues, uh, I've got friends that farm that have brought people in from South Africa to help operate their farms. You know, that that will probably continue, but it's going to become an increasing issue. So we're looking at a lot of things in robotics and automation. And then okay. third, uh, wh- where I live, 80% of the potable water flows through where I live here in, in, in Illinois or, or the region of Illinois, the Midwest. 80% of the potable water in North America flows through us but i think water's are going to going to become more and more of an issue uh, it already is if, if you're you know pretty much uh, you know west of the rockies and and maybe into uh, some of the uh, High plains of uh, Dakotas and Colorado, Nebraska, mm-hmm. but I think it's going to become more and more of an issue how we divert and use water. And I think there's some great opportunities there as well. So again, we're looking at at uh, you know crop inputs and in, in more efficient use of crop inputs, uh, optimization of uh, automation and robotics, and and water uh, optimization as well. Those are three sectors that we think are opportunistic. We're not limited to that. But that's where we look as we look at investments. Of course, all of that overflows into data and how data is used. Um, I, th- I think there's some plays there, but, but it then drills down to those sectors when you're looking at data. Hmm. Well, there
0: you go. For anyone listening to this, I mean, you just gave it a look like if you were to invest in companies into the future, it'd be improved crop inputs, automation, or those focused on water conservation. I mean, that's... That's kind of a, a, a sound playbook. In my opinion, I got a buddy out of California does has a company really focused on managing crop inputs as well. Um, a spit-off benefit of his company is also water reduction as well. Um, but yeah, huge things happening in automation as well. I mean, we just see what's happening in AI language models in general. I think there's going to be a huge, huge boom there. I don't think that's... Um, a question mark in anyone's mind, it's here. So now it's just, how do we manage that and get it, get it in the right place in the right time? It seems like.
1: Well, I've talked about AI, i spoke spoke for a group of farmers uh, this spring, about 200 farmers up in Iowa, and I was asked the question about AI. And this was uh, two days after Elon Musk said that we need to slow down the AI. And, and, and kind of my perspective is we have to have AI that we can trust. And trust is such an important part of what we do in both our investments, but also what the farmer, the farmer buys from people they trust. And, and that's what a lot of people in the investment field understand. Uh, AI, I think has to find a way to prove that it can be trusted. And I'll give you a quick example. If I'm a farmer and I'm farming bottom land that's along a river and um, it you know, has flood potential, but I need to also put certain inputs onto that land And I go to AI and ask what those inputs are. Is the information coming from my retailer, from my fertilizer company? Is it coming from the federal government and USDA who wants to uh, pursue WOTUS, Waters of the United States? And say, because it's along a waterway, we don't want you to put any fertilizer. Mm. So so the fact that it's coming from different sources, we need to know what those sources are. We need to know that we can trust those sources. So I, I caution my farmer friends to be careful uh, because just putting in my example of well how much fertilizer should I put on this forty acres that's along the river, you may get an answer that, that uh, is skewed by someone's bias on what what should be done along waters or what should be done with with uh, you know potentially waterfowl that, that uh, go, go along that river that could be uh, not as, as mm-hmm. a good habitat for them, that type of thing. So I think AI still has a long way to go as it relates to agriculture.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point you bring up, Jim. Just the data, the data source, the trustworthiness and also the integrity of that. And is there any, you know, for lack of a better term, like narratives that they're trying or in programs that they're trying to push to to get what they're looking for? Because at the end of the day, you know, sometimes it's not always a a win-win solution. Correct. When, and no matter what you're talking about, be it automation or just partnerships in general, you know, a lot of times you have to look at, you know, is it a truly a win-win situation or is it, is it one side just trying to push the, push the needle in favor of them?
1: Exactly. Yeah. yeah.
0: That's a, it's a good point, Jim. I, I like that you brought up those, those three facets, improve crop production, crop input, resourcefulness, automation, water conservation, um thank you for giving us a line of sight into what you're thinking as well in the next you know, three to four years these ag tech companies that's an interesting stat that you're talking about you know the the investment dollars is going from twelve billion to thirty six billion i think you said and that was largely all west coast money that's a that's a huge push that's a lot of money out there. It yeah. is.
1: And, and if you've got a five-year investment window, uh, you're going to have to start doing something and turn that money over, um, you know, in the near term. Hmm. Yeah,
0: most definitely. Well, Jim, this has been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for coming on and, you know, diving into some of these details about what you and the team at Open Prairie do. How some of your investments are structured, how you view business partnerships, what you look for in companies, you have a success story about Shenandoah Valley Farms. that was really great. you know providing really a customized solution for them over time um, that provided some of the multiple pain points for them just being in relationships with you. Um, so that was a great example for us to get a little flavor about what you do at Open Prairie. Is there any one last thing you'd like to leave us with today, Jim?
1: You know, just encourage entrepreneurs to not be bashful. Reach out to me, uh, Jim at openprairie.com or investors that want to learn more about what we do, uh, www.openprairie.com. We'd love to uh, have conversations with both because we think we can bring real value, whether it's for your investment dollars or for your, your company and your ability or desire to grow that company. We'd love to be a partner with you.
0: All right. Sounds great, Jim. We will also throw those in the show notes for you to make it easy for listeners that are interested in reaching out. So, Jim, thank you again. And to all the listeners out there, hope you enjoyed today's episode and look out for another one next week. All right. See you, everyone. Later.